Alright, welcome to another episode of Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast. Um, oh yeah, the theme song just happened, so I remember. With the, oh my god, that was an amazing theme song. Yay, theme song! Yeah, I'm just joking, I'm just trying to pat myself on the back. Um, but yes, welcome back to Hollywood's Haunted Podcast, where we discuss everything Hollywood, everything death, and everything that we think you should care about, I guess, you know, when it comes to death. Um, but like we told you in the previous episode, if you have been listening, um, today we actually have co-owner of Hollywood's Haunted with us, Tia Bean. Yay! Tia Bean! Hey, thanks guys. I'll, I'll play edit in some audience notes. Wonderful, yeah. <laughs> thanks for having me. It took okay. me a long time to get here. I had to travel really far that, that was, to get yeah. here. <laughs> From the land of living room. Here. We took it, the No Girls Allowed sign off the door. So oh, that's, oh, that's okay. right. Yeah, that yeah. Too. She yeah. saw the sign. For those of you who don't know, this is my bedroom, so I'm literally <laughs> sitting on my bed right now. Uh, but thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. As you know, I really like this stuff, so yay! Yay! Yeah, for those of you that don't know, Tia was basically the brainchild behind Hollywood's Haunted itself. Mm-hmm. Um, brainchild. Brain. <laughs> I should have said something more... I don't know, brain adult. <laughs> <laughs> that works. <laughs> um, oh but goodness. no, she yeah, she's definitely um, more of the creator um, of Hollywood's Haunted. So when we want haunted stories or creepy shit, we usually just go right to Tia anyway. So Yay! Now we're at the source. <laughs> Yay! So uh, are you want? You said you wanted to. You oh yeah, I brought a, I brought a story today for okay. you guys, and I know I've been talking to you guys for a couple of weeks about it even though I did most of my research uh, three hours ago. Um, <laughs> There's lots been lots of tea. Uh, yeah. So uh, so unfortunately this isn't a ghost story and nobody dies, but it is a very shocking and disgusting story. Uh, I'm gonna tell you the story of Patricia Douglas and the MGM studio party. Dun dun dun. dun, dun. Yeah. Sounds like a so. Uh, so this is uh, the late 1930s, and Patricia Douglas was a background actor, extra kind of like I do the same thing, you know, the people, <laughs> the people who you see in the background of the big crowds. Uh, in the late 1930s, this could even be some of the like uh, dancers that you see in some of those big musical numbers. Uh, so Patricia was born in Kansas City, Missouri, but she came to, uh, to Hollywood with her mother, Mildred, uh, and her, her mother was a seamstress and a designer for a lot of the big studios. And in her childhood, she was very coddled by her mother, but as Patricia got into her tweens, her early teen years, it became more and more obvious that her mother had kind of lost interest in her. Like her mother really wanted a baby, but like wasn't really interested in raising a young woman. So she was very much neglected and kind of left to her own for a long time, which ended up with her dropping out of school at 14 and then just kind of hanging around Hollywood. And she made friends with a lot of the movie stars like Dick Powell, Bing Crosby, I have it listed here, William Frawley, which I read that and I was like, how old was William Frawley like at this time in the 1930s? Like, 
She's only like 14 and he, hanging out with William Frawley. He, he was playing marbles while she was yeah, like, right? skipping her. Right? Uh, <laughs> so you like Jax, do you, kid? So, uh, so she's, uh, she's also very smart and she's a quick learner. And since she's just kind of like hanging out with Hollywood or in Hollywood, of course, she starts to do movies, you know. Like, anybody who lives in this town for a length of time ends up doing something involved with movies at some point in their life. Especially Even... that early on. Yeah, 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 especially when this is, like, the only thing that Hollywood does at the time. So she starts doing movies. She's in movies like, uh, so this is Africa and Gold Diggers were two titles that I found of her that she'd been in. And uh, so she starts going out for dance calls as well uh, because she can start to learn this stuff. She wasn't quite a dancer, uh, but later on in her life, they asked her like, who did you dance like? And she said, I danced just like J-Lo, which is <laughs> so funny. In, in the documentary I watched, um, which I watched today, a great documentary that really covers this. It's called Girl 27 and uh, she talks about it like later on in her life. She was quiet for 65 years about this and the guy to uh, unveil this covered up secret that I'm about to get into was a guy named David Sten. At the time he was researching uh, Jean Harlow. He wrote a book about Jean Harlow called Bombshell. Fun fact about that, the editor for Bombshell is Jackie Onassis. Mm. Mm, yeah, uh, I know, right? So he's doing this article uh, or this book, Bombshell, and uh, he's coming across these newspapers about Jean Harlow's death, but also on these newspapers are this article about this MGM party of, uh, with Patricia Douglas. So uh, this is what kind of inspires him to start to do some research and find Patricia Douglas and get her story. So uh, as I was saying, she was kind of a chorus girl, a dancer for uh, some of the big musical numbers, mostly those of MGM. So it wasn't completely like out of the blue or uncalled for for her to go to a casting call and which she did on May 2nd, 1937. Hmm. So she goes to this casting call. And she's how old at this point? She's 15. 15, okay. Wow. She goes to this casting call, she's 15. Uh, and she was told to report on May 5th to uh, Western Costumes, uh, where she would be given an outfit, and then they would have the production at Hal Roach's uh, ranch, which uh, <laughs> so which they filmed there a lot. Hal Roach, he was a producer-director behind the Laurel and Hardy films and mm -hmm. Little Rascals, and they filmed a lot of little rascals at his ranch. So it doesn't sound fishy at this point. Uh, it's a legit place. Legit place. Uh, but she says they never mentioned it was for an MGM party. So the party itself. MGM uh, wanted to gain more traction. And uh, so they decided that they were going to throw this five-day sales convention. They were going to invite... Salesmen from all across the world, uh, businessmen from various other cities that they had studios at, and bring them all here to uh, Culver City, uh, where their studio is. And so day one, all about 200 salesmen arrive at 
the Pasadena train station, train station that was owned by MGM. There, the train station is decorated with red, white, and blue banners, and Louis B. Mayer is there to greet them. And Louis B. Mayer says... And that's Louis B. Mayer Louis of, B. Mayer MGM. of MGM. Metro, Goldwyn, Goldwyn and Mayer. Mayer. Okay. So Louis B. Mayer says, uh, oh, okay, so it's Louis B. Mayer. He gets on this makeshift stage, and there are all these girls there uh, putting um, little ribbons and little flowers into onto the men's lapels. And the men were like kind of manhandling this woman. It's kind of the first red flag. Uh, they had spent three days on the train to get there. And one of the men says the Santa Fe isn't doing their job. We ran out of scotch yesterday. So they're already sloshed when they get there. And Louis B. Mayer says, we have all these women here to greet you. Uh, this should basically tell you, you know, what we uh, want from you and how we feel about you. And we feel about you, the, ki the kind of good time ahead of you, anything you want. Mm -hmm. So he basically is saying, you know, we're going to have this great time, no rules, no laws, you know, anything you want, we're going to get it for you. So uh, later that night they go to dinner at the ambassador hotel uh this is sunday the next day on monday uh they are motorcycle escorted to uh culver city and there a gentleman by the name of eddie mannix uh who was known uh he was a studio executive for mgm but he was known uh as Patricia Douglas put it, as a fucking gangster. And they're what they called a fixer. Mm. So he would shut people up and fix things. So Eddie Mannix presents Louis B. Mayer with the key to the city. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a marching band that plays the gangs all here. And throughout Monday and Tuesday, they have, they're wined and dined. They meet movie stars like Clark Gable. Uh, Jean Harlow at this time, even though she was pretty ill at this time, it says that she was there at this party, so, and Joan Crawford. Uh, so on the third day, uh, somewhere on Monday or Tuesday, the salesmen get a invitation, and the invitation says, yippee, get ready for the Wild West at Roaches, a stag affair out in the wild and wooly west where men are men. So. Okay. Yeah, so they're gonna go and have this like Western hoedown at Hal Rich's place. Now, this is supposed to happen on Wednesday, May 5th, which is the same day as Patricia Douglas's casting call. So, uh, so the women arrive at the casting call, 120 young female dancers, uh, plus several who had answered a small classified ad for MGM party hostess. So 120 of them don't know that this is for a party, but a few of them do. They're brought to Western costumes. They're fitted with cowboy hats, a bolero jacket, leather studded cuffs, short suede skirts, black boots. They seemed less Annie Oakley and more Gypsy Rose Lee. So 
they think they're going to uh, be... Like cocktail serving, stuff like that? Well, some of them know that, but most of the girls think they're going to be doing one of those big dance numbers in some oh, Western musical. Some oh, okay. musical, yeah. yeah. That's what it sounds like. Uh, they're paid $7.50 and given a hot meal for the day. That's what they're told they're going to get. So they go to Western Costumes, uh, and then they are bused to Rancho Rochero, which is what the ranch is called. And... Ugh, that already sounds already sounds disgusting. Rancho Rochero, seven miles from the studio. Uh, so, and they are herded into a large banquet hall and told to sit at the tables and wait. There was a bar and an orchestra, but no lights, camera, or crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the girls are sitting there waiting, and they kind of feel like something's up, you know. Like, why are we just sitting at this table? But most of them still think that it's for some sort of, uh, some sort of, uh, casting call. I mean, plus, like, if you think about it, I mean, when you go on sets and stuff, it's mostly hurry up and wait, you know, mm-hmm. like, so yeah. they could think like, oh, yeah, whatever, as long as I get yeah. my 750 and a hot meal, yeah, you know, yeah. like, I'll sit here and do nothing. Nothing's out of the ordinary. That, that yeah, idea, I mean, right? for yeah. all they knew, it could have just been holding and they were going to film somewhere else. Sure, right, yeah. You know, uh, Patricia Douglas says, you would never think they would pull something like that. You're trusting the studio. You're not expecting anything but to work in a movie. That's what you're there for. So at uh, 7 p.m., Eddie Mannix, Hal Roach, Louis B. Mayer, MGM bigwigs, male stars, and 300 salesmen show up to the site of these young women in these cute little cowboy outfits, and they go crazy. Uh, they mistake these professional dancers for party favors. And with no telephone out there, no form of transportation, the women have no means of escaping or leaving, so they have to stay. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't think the men thought it was a mistake. They were led to believe that it was, that it was okay. That's what they were there for, yeah. you know? And why yeah. would they think otherwise? Sure. Yeah, not so. to give them, like... Where men are men. You know what I mean? Like, not to give them an out or anything. But, yeah, also, like, yeah, that's really weird. You're setting up this whole... Yeah. Jesus Christ. Mm. So, uh, so, basically... Uh, they, the men are served, it says 500 cases of champagne and scotch for 300 men. Uh, early on in the evening, Laurel and Hardy perform and the Dandridge sisters, uh, Dorothy Dandridge being the star at 13 years old. Dorothy Dandridge? Yeah. Like from Hollywood High School? Yeah. Like, yeah, she's a famous performer. Mm -hmm. So they perform early in the night. But by 10 p.m., it says the veneer has vanished, and these men are fucking sloshed. Ginger Wyatt, 18-year-old Ginger Wyatt, who was brought there, she starts to freak out because these men are basically mauling these women. And uh, she asks actor Wallace Beery for help. Wallace Beery starts swinging and punching guys, and he ends up getting Ginger Wyatt out of there. She's one of the only ones to escape. Mm. Uh, and he's he's the only good guy in this mm. story. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of a badass. Like, he was the only one to, like, turn and be like, whoa, like, this is not okay. I'm getting this girl out of here. She needs some help. You know? And, I mean, otherwise, they're stuck there. They've been bust there. 
uh, the men's cars are all parked outside, but the women, they don't have any transportation. Yeah. So, uh, so this guy, David Ross, he's there at the party as well. And uh, he is a businessman from MGM in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, he keeps asking Patricia Douglas to teach him how to dance. Uh, dance called trekking it. You know, very, uh, we're going to trek in it or whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's a common dance at the time. She says he was all hands. Any excuse to brush up against me. She called him slimy and described him as having bulging big eyes. Here's a picture of him. Yeah. Yeah, he looks like a swarmy little <laughs> bastard. For, yeah. for the people listening right now, she is basically holding up a frog of a person. She called him, yeah, she says he, he was a slimy bullfrog, like, like is what he, she actually called him. Like, you could see the yeah. like that. So, uh, that's, where, that's where he makes his noise. So he keeps asking her to dance and she's like, no, leave me alone. Like she's pissed because she did not expect this at all. And at some point, uh, David Ross and several other men, uh, try to get her to drink. She does not drink. Uh, even well, though she was hanging out with, you know, some movie stars and stuff, she does not drink. She does not do drugs. She has no real aspirations of fame either, so she's not trying to like rub no like rub elbows with anybody, you know. She's not trying to play nice to like, you know, make it up. Sure. And that'll come out later, you know. There's a lot of people who kind of do sick, underhanded things or let people get away with stuff just to, you know, ensure their careers. Uh, but she wasn't about that. She wasn't looking for fame at all. So David Ross is trying to get her to drink, uh, and they have pictures of champagne and scotch there. And she asks what, it, what that drink is that smells so awful, and they're like, it's scotch. And she's like, who would drink this? It smells awful. And she refuses to drink it, so David Ross and a bunch of men hold her down, plug her nose, and start pouring alcohol oh. down her throat. Oh. She gets so sick that she has to run out of the barn and throw up. At this point, David Ross comes behind her and he says, uh, oh God, I gotta find it. He says, don't, or he says, make a sound and you'll never breathe again. So then he drags her to the uh, parked car and pins her in the back seat where he says, I'm going to destroy you. Then she starts to black out and he slaps her to wake her up. He says, cooperate, I want you awake. Hmm. So, David Ross rapes her in the back of this car. Uh, around 11.30, a gentleman named Clement Sloth, who was a parking attendant at this party, hears screaming. He hears Patricia Douglas saying, uh, I'm being attacked, I'm being attacked. Uh, and then she's heard saying, isn't anything sacred around here? Uh, now at the time, she's 15. She's a virgin and she's just been violated for the first time ever and she's completely in shock uh clement sloth sees uh patricia coming from a car stumbling and then sees david ross running away but later on when he testifies in front of the court he claims that he didn't recognize david ross mm -hmm. and after the fact of all of this uh, uh soth 
sorry, I keep saying sloth, Clement Sloth, or Soth, S-O-T-H, his daughters uh, claim that he lied under oath and that he did this to ensure a lifetime career with MGM. He was thinking about his family and his career at that point. Um, and his daughters in the documentary were like, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I don't know what I would have done at the time, you know, thinking about my family. I don't know what, I, what choice I would have made. Basically, uh, Patricia says, um, the next thing I remember is being in a small hospital and given a douche. I remember because the water was cold and it was not pleasant. Now, she's taken to a nearby hospital where, uh, in a studio car. Now, this hospital is owned partially by MGM and the, uh, let me see if I have the doctor's name, Edward Linguist, uh, treated Douglas, uh, co-owned the hospital and his practice largely dependent on MGM. For us, he was the family doctor, says a studio worker. So basically they don't do any sort of rape kit on her. Uh, she's given a douche, which takes away any evidence that would have been there. She doesn't know any better. She'd never had this happen to her anymore. And then she's driven home in a studio car and her mom basically acts like nothing happened. She's given no word of warmth whatsoever from her mom, uh, nothing. So Patricia like doesn't let this go uh, at all. So Two days later, she has to go to MGM to pick up her check for $7.50. <laughs> and as she's picking up her check, she tells the cashier, you ought to know what happened to me so it doesn't happen to anybody else. But basically, she's told, you know, what, are you, what do you expect us to do about it? You know, mm -hmm. here's your $7.50, you know, kick dirt. Have a nice day. Yeah. And she says, I wasn't trying to get anything. I just wanted somebody to believe me. So she's one of, if not the first person to ever speak out against this uh, happening to anybody. Uh, so she basically, she goes to the police, she talks about this, and there is somewhat of an investigation that is held uh, where uh, police basically start to interview uh, some of her friends and family members, they start to question her morality, you know, was Patricia a drinker? You know, things like this, trying to uh, bring up any type of dirt on Patricia, you know, and uh, defame her. And funny thing is, even though LAPD, Culver City PD, uh, as well as MGM's own police service was all present at the party, there was no police report ever made. Hmm. Yeah. So there was police at the party, but all this, you know, debauchery was going on, and damn it. Yay! Oh, sorry, our cat is <laughs> touching the microphone. Um. <laughs> so all this debauchery was going on, and there was police officers actually at the party itself? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, but basically MGM owned the whole sure. of the city. I'm sure they didn't invite the, the, the important people so that they don't, you know, yeah. they can grease the wheels. It says here, the power of MGM 
is unimaginable today. They owned everyone, the DA, the LAPD, they ran this place. Sounds about right. Yeah. 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 Sounds about right. And the fact that also if she made a complaint, it really wouldn't have gone anywhere and nothing would have happened. Mm-hmm. Because so, even a key witness didn't speak up for fear of his own job. So it's like... Yeah, exactly. If, if, if he saw something specifically and wouldn't speak up, then why would anybody else? Nobody else is going to yeah. mess with that gravy train. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and when it comes to trial, there's actually, out of the 120 girls, there's only two that show up sure. to speak. Of course. One being Ginger Wyatt, who got out of there. Uh, but I'll get to that in a second. So the headlines uh, start talking about this. This is a very scandalous affair. They publish Patricia's name, address, and a picture of her. Mm. They call, they can't use the word raped, so they use attacked, outraged, ravished, and they call it a studio orgy. The newspapers are not allowed to use the word rape? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's considered a four-letter word. Interesting. Um, and watching the documentary, there was a girl, uh, sorry, not a girl, a woman, because uh, she's much older at this time, but she was another person who had been an extra uh, for MGM as well. And uh, where was I going? Now I went off on a tangent. Totally forgot what mm-hmm. I was about to say. Uh, oh, that she didn't even know what the word rape was until she read it in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And she had to learn the word rape and the word tart. You know, which were both in the same article about Patricia. So she, yeah, she didn't even know so anything about So this. she did read the word rape in, in print? Mm, uh, or in a, like a book or something like that? Maybe, maybe about something okay. like that. Now I'm all confused. Sorry, uh, I didn't mean to throw you off. Yeah, no. She claimed that she learned the, the word rape from the case. But yeah. Oh, so okay. But so it wasn't printed. Sorry, no, it wasn't it, printed. Yeah. Uh, it was just kind of talked about. Got it. Yeah. So, uh... Yeah, and then, so they publish her name, her picture, and her address, but when they're referring to MGM, they call it a local studio. (laughs) Yay! So one good thing to come out of this, uh, being in the newspapers, though, is another girl comes forward about being uh, raped by an MGM executive. Uh, Her name was Eloise Spann. Uh, She was raped by an MGM executive. She got... Uh, she was a virgin at the time. She got pregnant and she had to have an abortion. But unfortunately, uh, nothing ever came of her case. Uh, her son, who's interviewed for the documentary, didn't know anything about it. He didn't really even know that she had been a singer when she was 19 years old. Uh, and she eventually ends up killing herself much later in her life. Wow. And he talks about how she was always in pain her whole life, or his whole life, you know, growing up. She always seemed like she was in pain. Uh, And he didn't know that she was a singer. And David Sten, who was doing this documentary, wanted to show a little bit of Eloise Spann's uh, musical career in the documentary, but MGM would not release any footage of Eloise Spann. So they're still very tight about this whole situation, Mm. you know? Still want to open that can of worms. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So, um, so basically from what I've never gone to court or anything before. So what I'm assuming happened was that there was like a pretrial before it would actually go to trial to Mm -hmm. decide whether or not a crime has been committed. Mm -hmm. So, uh, 
The DA at the time was best friends with Louis B. Mayer. Her uh, appointed lawyer later would try to become the DA, but I'll get into that. So she's appointed a lawyer. She's brought to a packed courtroom. Uh, two women come forth on her behalf. Uh, now they claim that Patricia is a, you know, they start to say, who would, who would love this woman? Uh, look at her, who would want her? Uh, and they start to paint her as if she was this reckless woman. Someone even came out and said that they saw Patricia Douglas passed out at the Knicker bar or Knickerbocker, <laughs> Knicker bar, Knickerbocker hotel bar, uh, which she never drank, so this is obviously made up. Um, and basically the case is dismissed. As Patricia Douglas is leaving the courtroom, the press push her and David Ross together to get a photograph. <laughs> yeah. She's so overwhelmed by it that she starts running down the hall and tries to jump out of the window of the courtroom. Oh. Yeah. Jesus. She says... Uh, I was going to jump through the glass, or I can't, I can't. I was going to jump through the glass to get away from everything and everybody so I wouldn't be hurt anymore. So, uh, okay, so uh, the case is dismissed. It sits dormant for three years. It's brought back up, but at this time, her lawyer, who was named William J.F. Brown, uh, he wants to become a DA now, so he has to go up against the DA who is Louis B. Mayer's best friend. So the way he's able to leverage it is by not showing up in court. He doesn't show up in court three times because he's trying to win over MGM. And he's like, if I botch this case, then MGM will like me. Mm. And he does. Uh, and even her own mother, who was supposed to be her guardian at the time basically drops the ball and showing up as well so nothing it's dismissed a second time so it's first dismissed at a state level and then it's dismissed at a federal level and basically nothing happens for 65 years until david sten uh discovers this story as he's doing his research and does this documentary called Girl 27. It's called that because that was what she was told on the casting call, is that you're Girl 27 out of 120 uh, dancers. So in those 66 years, she says she's never been in love. She never danced again. That was all taken away from her. But when he does this documentary on her, she says, I was getting ready to die. I'd buy, I'd buy less food. I wasn't planning to be around long. Now I don't want to go. Now I have something to live for. And for the first time, I'm proud of myself. And I love how this Vanity Fair article ends with this story. Uh, it says, the lion raped, but Patricia Douglas and still was and still is the mouse that roared. Oh. And that is my story of That's Patricia crazy. Douglas Jesus and Christ. the most disgusting party ever held. I, I don't even know if it is, actually. I don't even know oh, if this I'm is sure like That's the, the only... This the tip of the fuckbird. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Yeah. 
God, that's... So, man. I think I covered most of it. There is, I apologize to uh, Patricia Douglas's family and David Stan if I left anything out. Um, I highly encourage anybody listening to this to read the Vanity Fair article called It Happened One Night at MGM uh, or to uh, watch Girl 27. Mm. You know, uh, there's a lot more in there about other things that were happening at the same time and the after effects of this whole situation. Um, and sorry, I bounced around. I'll get better the next time. Oh, I promise, it was guys. It was, it was, it was, Thanks. Yeah. I hope my lisp didn't come out too much either. So no, you're, you're fine now. <laughs> but, ugh, God, that's so yeah. So then I'm hot. happy, yeah. wonderful. Oh, I'm sorry, I clapped. Go for it. Yeah, and I hope that just like I know it's not a ghost story, but I was just trying to set the scene for like you know some of the dark things that really happen in the early days of Hollywood and just how they like really treated women and to this day we're still dealing with Weinsteins and the Me Too, Me Too movement and yeah. uh, you know the parties like this like obviously still fucking happen yeah. you know Definitely. so it's that was like yeah like Westworld without them being robots <laughs> you know what I mean like sure. just I mean, the fact that they were told that it was a casting or it was a, uh, it was going to be some sort of casting call. You know, they had no idea. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, there's so much. To be, so to much be tricked into that and then all of a sudden you're like basically roped in there. Yeah. And, and, and also to think like me as an extra, how many times I've shown up been given my costume and then bust out to a place where no, I've never fucking been nowhere or like you're gonna sit in a parking lot at four in the morning till eight and then we're gonna start you know and I have to be like all right I'll see you later yeah exactly <laughs> you yeah. know great and you're right you, you put <laughs> um, all of your trust in that because like you said you don't know yeah what's happening and of course you want to you want to do a good job. You want to be remembered. You you're hoping to get your foot in the door as far as the business is concerned. So you don't mm -hmm. want to cause waves. You don't want to ask all these questions and be annoying and and whatnot. And when you're out there and trapped and and don't know, you're just kind of in a room. And all of a sudden, they just let all these bulls into the room. You're like, what is happening? Yeah, you know, yeah. just oh, get man. get knocked off. So I can I can totally see that. That's very tough yeah. stuff. And you you know, in a way, your story does kind of relate because you know a lot of people feel that when you see a ghost, it's because of a lot of, let's say, negative energy or that kind of thing. And that mm -hmm. kind of energy comes from situations like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, it does kind of, you know, uh, intersect in a way because of the energy, because of that raw, just anger and, and, and fear, mm -hmm. you know, is it's, it, it, it goes somewhere. And, uh, you know, a lot of people feel that, you know, if she had died, would there have been a ghost of her there? You know, had she, had she died from, from that, from yeah. that you know? Or just um, died and because a lot of, yeah, like you're saying, like energies and like our memories, like some she had unfinished business that she, you know, like she said, she never loved, she never sure. danced again, you know, like yeah. Yeah, maybe she wants to stay. Yeah. So absolutely. I mean, I, I definitely think that your story uh, definitely works with, with the topics mm -hmm. that we talk about because of that, you know, it's yeah, a lot totally. of, a lot of, you know, not just from her, obviously all the other girls that were there, mm -hmm. I'm sure there, you know. And I mean, one reason I wanted to tell this story is because it is not talked about very much either, you know, sure. and I think, I mean, apparently not, I think you know, like, it should be, yeah, you know, in... I mean, it was, 
when David Sten was going over this, uh, he was like shocked that he'd never heard this story. And he's writing a book on Jean Harlow at the time. Uh, he'd never heard of her, you know? And it's because it was like covered up so much. Like, sure. So nobody talks about it. Baffling, you know? Yeah, they wanted it. They, yeah, they made sure it was, yeah, nobody would be there. Yeah, they made sure, which is really fucked up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, know, and that's like one they... part I didn't even get into is that uh, a lot of people were, I want to say, hired to testify the wrong thing, you know, to basically say the wrong thing as a, as a witness uh, to guarantee that they would have a job with MGM. So, oh God. it's like misinformation. Give me a second. I would find the quote where it talks about that. Oh my goodness. Um, oh man. Ah, uh, I can't find it. But it's like basically uh, one of the lawyers with MGM was talking about this guy who wanted to testify, and then he's like, "Well, you know what are." What do I need to give him uh, to buy buy them off? You know, it's ridiculous. Oh yeah, you know? just all, just how cocky it is and how how blatant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Blatant, the power is so blatant. And what do you have for us today? Do you have another ray of sunshine for us today? Uh, of course, yeah. You want me to go next? <laughs> uh, yeah, lighten the mood a little. Right. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm not a> <laughs> joke. <laughs> this one's the opposite of a ghost. This is about a baby being born. Oh. Yeah. And then murder. Uh, <laughs> Wait, are you serious? No, no, that'd be hilarious. Yeah, that the but only just... way to top that is if like, and now about a woman who murdered 127 I mean, babies. There are positive stories about Hollywood. You oh, I know? thought you were gonna say about murdering babies. So to be like, yeah, you're right, yeah. babe, you're right. Remember that one time that it was positive that they murdered that baby? I mean, you remember? If you went back in time and murdered Hitler, you know, as a baby. We're not going to hear any of those positive stories on this podcast. No, they exist. Yeah, yeah, mine is a ghost story. I noticed, Jameson, you seemed a little like, what the fuck's this story last time? You know? Okay. I I made sure I got a ghost story. We got a little pyro in there? Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's it's not like the best, you know, but I thought it, I thought it'd be good because it's uh, about movie studio. You're, what's your your story you're doing? uh, I'm doing the Warner Warner, Pacific Warner. Warner Pacific Warner. So yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to do something that was like involved in uh, uh, the studios. Uh, So yeah, it's about Edward W. Gray, Um, and this also heavily involves um, the, sorry, I'm slapping things, you know, I'll talk Mm -hmm. to you about your papers later. slap me in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, I want you awake during this. You too, Jameson. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. Uh, Damn, that was a good one. Um, So yeah, this also involve heavily involves a place that used to be called General Service Studios, but now it is called Sunset Las Palmas Studios. I don't know if you've ever been. Did you ever do background work or I extra work or anything that's... back in the day? I, I've been on sets and things, but not okay, really. But not at yeah. the Sunset Studios. No. Uh, Ten Forty Las Palmas Avenue. Like I said, it's now called Sunset Las I Palmas think Studios. That's where they filmed Judge Judy. We t- yeah, uh, me and Tia talked about this before, but we we've been there for sure, um, and we saw Judge Judy, and there's a few other Judge shows that oh, filmed film in that same well. spot. Um, um, so it was actually founded in 1919 by John Jasper, um, but yeah, like like we're saying, tons of stuff films there now. Um, originally, uh, 
Howard Hughes, famed aviator, mm-hmm. producer, billionaire, inventor, etc. Man, <laughs> hypochondriac and maniac. Yeah, exactly. Jar peer. Jar pisser. <laughs> <laughs> the man who kept his toenails. Um, he uh, filmed Hell's Angels there. The television show Ozzy and Harriet was filmed there. Green Acres filmed there. Beverly Hillbillies. And for the first two years of I Love Lucy, it was actually hmm. filmed there before. I think that's... Before the Desi They moved Lou. to the Desi Lou Studios, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, that was Desi Arnaz and Lucy Ball, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Shirley Temple also made her film debut here. And this was also the foundation of the ill-fated Zootrope Studios. I don't know if you guys ever heard that. Mm. It was founded by Francis Ford Coppola. Oh. Neither did I, so I did a little research on it. Um, <laughs> he, um, there was uh, The first thing they, they put there at all to film was actually Apocalypse Now. Oh. Um, but that was pretty much the one and only film that Zootrope did that was any good, I guess. Um, but he basically, Zotrope Studios was supposed to be Ford Coppola as like advance into the film industry. He wanted to do, he wanted to streamline the whole process. He wanted it to be digital. He wanted it to be beamed off of satellites directly. He wanted to do pretty much everything on the studio. So this would basically, um, I think he actually words it really well, uh, most of all, the studio would be freed from authority and the meddling of the majors and uh, lawyers and agents. So basically, this studio was so brilliant and that it doesn't exist nowadays because it didn't. It wasn't about making money. It was about basically about letting the director have full control. Okay. From distribution to marketing to. So it would, so you would never have to get a director's cut of a movie, you know, it would just be, this is the director, you know, and this was so, um, so ahead of its time that they're still trying to do what he did. Um, like literally having it off of a sat, like digital through satellite image, you know, that's stuff that we're still working on, Hmm. you know, like basically cutting out the middleman of distribution. And this is early 70s? This was, yeah, 1975 that he had started thinking about that. Oh, okay. Um, But that's kind of, he wanted to make that studio happen that way. But when he had this whole idea, this is stuff that's not going to make money in the near future at all, you know. And back then there was, you know, Hollywood was definitely down on its, you know, luck and he wasn't making that much money. Apocalypse Now was, I mean, it was a big film, I guess, but more in a artistic artistic sense rather than a blockbuster numbers way, you know. Um, (laughs) Nice, nice, we caught one, nice, we caught one, nice. (laughs) I hope I wasn't talking about it. That was our fourth host, Jameson's stomach. He's hungry, apparently. He's very interested in the story, okay? <laughs> Stomach air quotes. Like, um, so yeah, this is kind of the best way it's put. The larger significance of Coppola's purchase of Hollywood General and his attempt to create an alternative studio in the very heart of Hollywood was that it carried with it the promise of an American auteur cinema in which the director might someday control the product from development to release. Okay. That's what I wanted to say. Yeah. Sure. Which... Unfortunately, can never happen because we're too greedy, or you know, you know what I mean. It's like there's just so many other people that needed needed to make money in that sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was kind of uh, the the zoetrope. Eventually, it turned into um, 
it was zoetrope something american zoetrope and they their first venture was uh bram stoker's dracula which was you know good but and then they did uh is that with keanu yeah (laughs) um but anyway that was the zoetrope studios had to show you guys that um but yeah back to edward gray so edward gray fell to his death on stage four and stage four, if you were looking at the gate... Wait, who's Edward Gray Edward again? Gray. He is uh, the person that I'm talking about. I'm totally paying attention. That's right. Exactly, <laughs> right? He's this bold one right here. Oh, okay. Um, so this... Sorry, you just... I'm building it up. I'm building it up. So he fell to his death on in stage four. And that would be where Judge Judy actually did film. It's one of the bigger stages. But basically, if you're facing the gate... It would be right past the gate on your right hand side, so very, very close to the front. And we establish that he's an actor or a background. Um, no, he's not. He actually works on the studio. Okay. Um, Edward Gray was actually an electrician, and so he was, uh, yeah, frequently, you know, up on the high rises and stuff. The catwalk. And most of this information, by the way, I forgot to mention, I actually got from Laurie Jacobson's um, Hollywood. Um, what is it called? Hollywood Haunted. <laughs> very close uh, a ghostly tour of filmland which i believe we actually own the book i think we own maybe a few of laurie jacobson's on the bookshelf uh, over there on that bookshelf we'll have over to there. look unfortunately i got it from yield internet <laughs> <laughs> but um so some people recall it differently um even laurie jacobson recalls it happening on a different stage um in where another studio worker fell to his death but she never actually gave the name so a lot of people assume that it was edward gray because of the similarities in the story and they were also they were also on that stage making the film stairway to hell some some films require several stages so it Mm -hmm. could have been a different stage um stairway to hell was just a working title um, it actually finally, I think I have a picture, I oh, know, I didn't care. Uh, the, the film that finally came out was called Angel on My Shoulder. <laughs> Complete opposite of what it was Which is, about. which is still, either way, the title is not good for a man falling to his death. <laughs> you know, Stairway to Hell or Angel on My Shoulder, you know, like, who was the one that was like, oh shit, somebody died? Yeah, we're not going to call it this anymore. Uh, we're going to change the title. Uh, but apparently for many years after there was several technical problems on the stage um but uh the the reason people assumed that he fell was because um of the injuries that he sustained um but the reason he was found uh he was actually found uh on midnight uh april 3rd 1946 underneath a 65 foot catwalk um that everyone assumed he had fallen from uh, like I said, because of those injuries. But there was a and, uh, later on. It actually says that the other, the only other injuries it could have been is if he was run over by a car going at like fifty miles an hour. Mm-hmm. But he was on stage, so they're assuming there. You know, but it's all. <laughs> who knows? Maybe they ran over him and threw they him on stage. Found his body on the stage, all beat up. Okay, yeah, like uh, like he had been hit by a car. Um, but yeah, like I said, yeah, he was found on stage. Um, at midnight, April 3rd, 1946, underneath the 65-foot catwalk. Um, and another theory that was supported that he fell and wasn't run over by a car was actually there was a 2x4, like 15 feet down from the catwalk, that apparently had blood dripping off of it. So he had 
fell, hit that piece of wood, and then fell even further and then landed on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also found intoxicated with a level of 0.29. Oh, whoa. Which the legal limit is actually 0.08. Um, so yeah, he was he was trashed. But it was, uh, it was actually a, a party uh, that they were having for the studio. Oh, so um, he was just drunk going up there. What year, exactly. what year is this? This is uh, 1946. Oh, okay. Um, but apparently there were enough questions about his death that an inquest was held. Uh, reportedly, he was um, with a friend of his. They were um, said to be uninvited guests at a gay party that was hosted by film star Paul Mooney. And they're actually talking gay as in a happy, great, well, yeah, in the 40s, out of control gay, party. Yeah. 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 yeah they're, they're, they're Game just, it happy. Yeah. yeah. And, they're just having a gay old time. You know. Gay. Holding some and, teen. You know. That's just, <laughs> roommate meant gay. This is my life, life roommate. Yeah. <laughs> we sleep in the same bed yeah. and we share the same shower. Oh, um, <laughs> but yeah, so. Um, so, like I said, it was hosted by the film star, Paul Mooney. He was the star of uh, Angel on My Shoulder, originally Hell on Wheel. No, Stairway to Hell. Sorry, Hell on Wheel. Oh, God, that's terrible. Um, <laughs> but um, um, it was just to celebrate the completion of the film. This was something that studios did all the time. It's like the cast party. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the cast party, yeah. Neither uh, Edward Gray or his friend worked on the film, uh, but they showed up anyway because Edward was he worked on the studio a lot. he was like the studio a lot electrician mm-hmm. so right you know I'm sure that was just kind of how you did it especially back at, I'm shit I'm sure that happens today still you know like if, I so mean, any, thrown, any grips that want to invite me to a Hollywood party I mean, how many parties have I thrown when there's someone I don't know in my own house that's true <laughs> yeah. Yeah. there you go a lot of really weird parties yeah, it was back in the day too. Yeah. Um, the party began at 6 p.m. with a bar set up on the soundstage. Um, there was, uh, you know, a bunch of tables set up around a papier-mâché reconstruction of hell, uh, which was a familiar scene in the film, apparently. Um, that sounds awesome. I know, right? Papier-mâché. <laughs> I want hell. that for yeah, my next right? party. <laughs> We're making that. <laughs> sounds like a great way to start a fire, too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the stars, uh, Paul Mooney and Ann Baxter, were actually both called to testify at the inquest that was held. Um, Paul Mooney said he wouldn't be of any help because he left the party early. He says, in quotes, says, what was called a gay party didn't seem so gay to me, as I had been working all day and I was just tired. Without seeming facetious, if that was a gay party, I wonder what a dull one would be. All the people were tired. The idea was just to throw a little shindig, show goodwill. We were very tired. Dog tired. I mean, we've had that happen <laughs> so before. Like, like, that's the I worst. I don't know if I'm... Yeah, <laughs> that's the worst when the cast party is, like, immediately after the rap. You know, you know? yeah, that's probably like, what it was. Yeah, exactly. Like, all right, and that's a rap, Paul Moody, ladies and gentlemen, you know? And then he's like, oh, yeah, don't forget your cookies and your drink before you Whiskey go. and donuts all back, guys. Whiskey and donuts, yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. <laughs> And, like, that's not really a party. Yeah, that's not, yeah. But to somebody that's, like, an electrician, that's not a Hollywood person. Free booze. Know, free booze. Also, I'm, a, I'm at a Hollywood party. Yeah, and he didn't have to I'm, work all day. He didn't work on the film. That's true, too. So. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. It's probably the free booze. Yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, Especially if you're a construction guy. You're, like, 
I can drink for free. In the 40s, right. yeah, exactly, of course. Yeah. In the 40s, yeah, of course. Um, so apparently Edward was noticeably drunk, and he was actually escorted by a different friend to the gate that I was telling you about. To you know, His friend was trying to hail him a taxi. Um, and when he finally got the taxi, he turned around and Edward was booking it back to the studio. He like <laughs> sure ran, not. like drunkenly ran. Wait, basically. I gotta walk on the catwalk before I go home. <laughs> that that's almost a spoiler. Oh my god, nicely done. <laughs> um, so <laughs> apparently that was like a thing uh, back in the day. Oh. Um, what do you mean? I'll, I'll, I'll get I'll get into that in a second. Uh, <laughs> getting drunk and going on the catwalk. Um, one friend, Alan Seeger, who, um, this is actually some of, I also got information from alanseeger.com, which was, uh, his, apparently his own, in, uh, actual information. Wait, who's Alan Seeger? Um, he was just the person that owned the property. Oh. The time. The name um, sounds so familiar. Hmm. Yeah. It literally says, yeah, a property man said that, uh, yeah, uh, he was, yeah, he was, couldn't even walk. And that's why, so Alan Seeger was actually the person that walked in there. Um, but yeah, like he's, like I said, they saw him booking it back to the studio. But even, even uh, Seeger knew that like he was drunk and that like he did this all the time. And apparently he, in quotes, it even says that he saw him earlier that day falling two to three times on the set <laughs> that he was working on. So, like, he wasn't just drunk at the party. That's oh, so he was working early in the day somewhere else. But somewhere else, yeah. Well, same like studio, just different Pre-gaming stage. it on the job. I, but apparently that's that was something that a lot of people did because they knew, I, mean, I'm, I can just get fucked up, go to the high rise and the catwalk because yeah. no one's going to go up there and no one's going to be like, hey, no one's seen Gary. Well, if he didn't clock out, I'm going to go climb this 65-foot catwalk and look for him. Yeah. No, that never fucking happened. You know what I mean? Like... <laughs> So it's kind of a good job. That's true, I guess. <laughs> um, but um, where 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 did I leave off? So yeah, he had climbed uh, the high backdrop, and uh, from from there, apparently, some people say that they saw him stumble or fall onto the catwalk, uh, and then fall from there. So I mean, it was just bound to happen. It almost seemed like you know what I mean. Um, the party ended at 8.45, so at midnight, I mean, at midnight, fall, you know, like, he was obviously just really drunk, you know, and shouldn't have been there. So mm-hmm. he fell after the party had ended? Yeah, because the, the, so his party ended at 8.45, and he, they, I mean, they found him at midnight, but that means, if it fell during the party, you know, you know, that would have been the event of the party, you sure. know, like, everybody would have seen that. <laughs> So he definitely had to that was fall the second best part after of the, the part. That's lit, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, after he fell, apparently they have like tons and tons of weird stuff that happens uh, in the same area. Um, cold spots, unexplained noises, uh, shadows on the soundstage, uh, lights going on and off, things being moved. Um, these are all reported by different guards, workers, maintenance workers, uh, directors, actors. Um, there are also several problems with stage five, which was right next door, and that's where Ozzy and Harriet was produced. And um, some people believe that it was, you know, Ozzy himself, who was a workaholic, who died technically oh, before his time. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, right, that's hilarious. <laughs> Jameson was that would throw, be, throwing that would, up the horns. That would be a great Ozzy and Harriet. Yeah, we just got to find Oh my god, that's funny. I thought it was Ozzy and Sharon, but whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, they think that he haunts the set because he was like a workaholic. Um, that's like a spoiler for you. Mm-hmm. Um, the 1920s and 30s, it was known as Metropolitan Studios. Um, that in the later years of the studios, the offices were mostly empty and, um, the offices that when they were, uh, occupied were actually occupied by Al Christie, who was a big film pioneer from 1925 to the 30s. Um, and Christie was apparently another person that worked till, you know, till, you know, 16 hour days type of dude, just never could stop. Um, but apparently he lost everything when the stock market crashed mm. and not just uh you know his money apparently he had all of it wound up in the studio in his house his car like he lost literally everything mm-hmm. um so um a lot of people say that because he never you know regained real success or wealth you know that that's why he still haunts the area um, a lot of people report stage six being haunted as well, and that was where uh, a gaffer fell to his death about 20 years ago. Um, they don't give his name here, and I'm not sure why, um, but that could also be the thing. Me and James were talking in the previous episode uh, where um, it's strange when suicide notes actually come out, like you, like how we know Peg Entwistle's suicide note. Mm-hmm. Like It's strange that there isn't like a law or something on that, like, to not be published. To not be published, because we were talking about the Obon and how uh, Charles Love sent a note to Harry Langdon, you know? Yeah. And it would be really great to read that, you know? Yeah. But also, like, would that maybe he yeah. didn't want... A, I think maybe it maybe just has Harry more to Landon. do with, like, the family after the fact, whether or not they're going to release it to the public. That's or true. Or yeah. whether or not press gets their hands on it before the family gets their hands on it, mm-hmm. too. You know. Sure. Like in the case of Peg Edwistle, the, the hiker found the notes, so they were probably like... Yeah. You know. And the press was probably there in that's true, immediately. Yeah, right. that's and at true. the time, too, you were saying earlier, uh, or the other day, that the press was the police some of the time. I mean, the you press know? were always they were getting, quicker. They were getting paid more they, to sell stories than they were by being a detective. So mm-hmm. they would clock out of one and go, back, go into the other, you know. So... But they were, yeah, the press was, yeah, better than the police, yeah. Yeah, yeah like you said, yeah, they made they made actual money. <laughs> and the cops, yeah. the cops had to clock out. And when you're a journalist, you don't have to clock out. Yeah, yeah plus they were very speedy, too, because they're trying mm-hmm. to get the jump on the scoop and stuff. So it's like, yeah. not yeah, only yeah, you're, you're not wasting any time. You're out there immediately looking for witnesses or clues or anything. So. Got to make up things like the Hollywood sign girl. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I can't believe that was what they came up with. That, that was as good as it got. Yeah, that's hilarious. Um, the last little ghost story, uh, kind of cool. Um, but, uh, another former stage manager, like he said, he, he would, uh, he complained about, uh, stage six where the gaffer fell to his death 20 years ago. Um, but he described it specifically as, uh, whenever you went to close for the night, uh, he would turn off the lights and make sure and lock all the doors. But as he was le- as he's leaving every night, he could hear footsteps in the rafters above him. And as he's moving, he can hear it. And when he stops, they stop. And then he keeps moving, and they steep, keep moving, and then he stops, and he stops. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, he's like, it's freaking And scary. it's certainly not my own echo? Mm-hmm. No, he can hear it as the rafters. He's mm-hmm. worth there, yeah. Oh, about him. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, that's uh, Edward Gray. Uh, so and that was check all out three of those the, stories were from the, the same studio. Same correct? studio, just two different stages, I guess technically. Got it. Um, the but they're yeah. yeah, literally right next door, and yeah, they're probably. I mean, films take up several different stages, so they're probably doing Stairway to Hell in both of them. I mean, maybe even the whole. Fucking oh, studio. fun fact! Uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas when it filmed at Universal Studios took up eleven sound stages. Ooh. Wow, which is the largest production to ever be on that lot at that time there might have been larger productions since then but there's 28 sound stages and it took up 11 of them that's crazy is it true they finally took out the who stuff yeah it's gone i mean it was like it was falling apart it was all sun it was all sun blasted like like, when i was it was not magical at all I (laughs) i loved the grinch growing up i was so excited when they had the, that on the studio tour. I remember coming and seeing it for the first time on the studio tour, but uh, yeah. hearing that they're taking it down, like having seen it earlier this year, I'm like, dude, that that was a fire hazard yeah, waiting to happen. That's true. <laughs> we all know Universal Studios catches on fire. Yeah. I mean, you know. Basically keep fire hazards. Right? Uh, yeah, and, so and I just and I digress. So I, yeah, right. Before I go yeah. off on yeah, my yeah, own yeah, personal we spend rage a rant, twenty minute tangent. I have to edit out later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who don't know, I have worked for the mouse and for the woodpecker. So <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the minion. <laughs> the minion, yeah, yes. The mouse and the minion. There you go. Yeah. That sounds good. Because nobody knows who Woody Woodpecker is anymore. These days. <laughs> That's true. That's yeah. true. Like, How did she work for a bird? I actually was the woodpecker for a while. So. I was the walrus. Oh, nice. Cuckoo, cuckoo, Nice. Wait, were you really right. walrus? All right. Oh. Well, all right. All right. Like I, I was throwing my Beatles joke. You never know. You never know. <laughs> There's so many random characters. I've done. I've done the. Um, what are those characters called? The scare actors, or no, but I mean, just like in the park, like I, I would like do uh, the parade and stuff, and I would be Mickey Mouse or you know a knockoff of Mickey. You know? Wait, where, where, where is this? I, I worked for um, an animation store, and they would have me dress up uh, to like oh. hand out balloons to kids and stuff, and That's that would awesome. be, you know, you're Mickey Mouse with a Y, you know, oh, stuff like that. They're you know? usually called fuzzies or mascot yeah. characters, yeah, but yeah. oh, so, that's cool. So yeah, so when I was like, you know. Y. 19, 20 years old, I'd be walking around waving, handing kids balloons and stuff and try to get them into this, you know, uh, animation art dealer that sold animation cells for like, you know, thousands of dollars. Like any kid is going to be able to walk in there and buy that stuff. But that was his plan. I mean, it's a cool gimmick. Yeah. No, I'm really a big animation fan. So for me, working there was exciting, um, but it was definitely not a a place that if you were, (laughs) I have 50 bucks, they'd be like... You can you can look at the paintings right, if you like, yeah. <laughs> you know. So take this and laugh at you. But it was cool. It was very cool. Well, my story uh, has to do with something here in Hollywood as well, and it's um, it's actually on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, um, uh, actually on the corners of Hollywood and Wilcox. Mm. So uh, they call it the Pacific Warner Theater because it was uh, purchased in the seventies from um, Pacific Theaters, uh, but basically it was uh, the creation of the Warner Brothers themselves. Uh, let's let's take a trip down uh, history here, memory lane, if you will. Uh, I'm gonna put in some sound effects. I'm like, yeah, the harp. Well, let's hear the harp. You know, <laughs> you know go back down into. Um, <clears throat> but it, um, I would say uh, I'm a big fan personally of movies. I, I I really enjoy watching movies. I've I've always been in, into uh, uh, 
just watching in films and being in a theater and stuff. And, and this is a very grand, beautiful theater. When you, if you can find photos of it online, uh, I highly recommend it. You can see kind of what that old school genetic feel of the 20s and 30s and stuff of these grand theaters uh, looked like and, and how people really, it was kind of like a night out on the town, you know, it was a, a big to do, if you will. I mean, the ones you're showing us right now are amazing. Uh, oh, whoa. Holy <laughs> Jesus. There you go. Yeah. Can't wow. find, can't, can't find those deep. anywhere, I bet. <laughs> what were those machines called? Yeah, right. Projector. Oh, Microfiche. <laughs> my 1980s projector. Oh, Exhibit my F. Um, so the, uh, the theater was, uh, well, again, being a fan of movies, like I was saying, uh, movies officially debuted on October 14th, 1888. That was the first movies motion picture. in general? Oh, okay. The first motion picture was shown. Was that the train that we were talking about? Maybe? I think that, yeah, okay. I think that's considered the Ooh. first, uh, I want to tell, film. talk about that later on and how Thomas Edison is a bastard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we kind of oh, already yeah. went over that one. Oh, yeah, really. but but I know the tea. Oh, we can tell the whole story. That's the true. whole kit and caboodle. Okay. Well, well so okay. we're looking at October 14th, 1888, and, and up until uh, basically the mid-20s, there was, there was no sound involved in movies. You had, you know, place cards that would say what was going on in the story or what characters were saying and then you mm -hmm. had somebody probably playing like live music in the background yeah if you saw the three amigos then you know what i'm talking about <laughs> <laughs> but uh Man, but yeah so many so, good references in that movie you know oh, so silent films in there uh basically silent film era uh you know and and uh, again hollywood is making all these movies at this time they're making all these silent films but it isn't until um the warner brothers uh come along that that they the, the idea of sound is now a possibility, okay? And you have four brothers in the Warner Brothers. You have Albert, Harry, Jack, and Sam. It's the four Warner Brothers. Uh, it's not Dottie and Yakko and Wacko. And Warner's which, sister. Yeah, I thought it was. It's not. It's Albert, Harry, Jack, and Sam. So, oh my God. false advertising. And they're not locked in the water tower either. That's not true either. They don't yeah. just let them out every day at they 3 o'clock for 30 minutes. <laughs> for 30 minutes, and then they slam them back in there. So, um, basically, uh, the, Sam was the guy that was the pioneer as far as wanting to, to, to pursue sound in movies, to pursue, uh, to, to, to go down that avenue and see what they could really find. And so he started to partner with, um, a, uh, with GE, General Electric. That's, trip. That's a trip to me because, I don't know. Not that we have General Electric as a sponsor or anything, you right? Know? But we would be okay with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's crazy because uh, I got to give it to Gene. They they are very much pioneers in their in their fields. Yeah. And they're in a lot of different fields and they're constantly uh, investing in like that type of stuff. Sorry to interrupt. No, that's, they're, that's, they're that's, pioneers. And yeah, I mean, I remember being younger and General Electric was sponsoring the Electric Light Parade at Disneyland oh, when it go. first came and out. That, and that was, I mean, it's still revolutionary technology that mm. they do, you know? the That podcast I was listening to is about, you know, some like futuristic thing where you create a digital twin of yourself online so that way, like the same way you would create a digital twin of a car and you would test out this car for a hundred thousand miles and then when things break down you would know hey if it breaks down here at day what such and such it's probably going to break down on day such and such on an actual car hmm. so that was like 
the, the of course this podcast was a fiction podcast that's about like you know i'm replacing a real person and all this other stuff but it was sponsored by ge because they had this idea you know and then just kind of like oh run with it you know which is really cool right. yeah that's 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 a trip yeah well it seems to me that um sam was really pursuing buying a radio station with with warner brothers money and the, the brothers were they they he basically got him on board with it and by by purchasing uh kfwb uh they that basically led to the talks with with uh ge Oh, okay. uh, fun fact that's KFW the that are on top, right? yeah correct okay. and so when you when you see the two uh, as they as they're considered iconic towers now because apparently when when those were uh, put up there that was like wow you have two massive antennas on top of your building here uh, mm-hmm. and that's broadcasting to all of Los Angeles and San Fernando Valley and, and whatnot um, so you have you have all these uh, you have these giant towers and uh, fun fact: KFWB stands for Keep Filming Warner Brothers. Oh, uh, so there you go. Subliminal. Right, boom. Uh, it's now a Spanish uh, station. By the way, the station does still exist, uh, but it, it plays uh, Spanish radio. Do they have a different acronym for it now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is, and I will not make that joke. <laughs> that's, yeah. That is a good call. No, yeah, no, that's that's that I just good. have to edit it out later. Anyway, yeah, that's a good point. But uh, so yeah, so they. Uh, GE and Sam Warner kind of start to build off of this technology that GE comes to him with saying that we can we can possibly pair sound to movies what do you think and he wants to pursue it so he pursues it and they release uh, Don Juan uh, with sound effects and music incorporated into the film already okay mm. so this is a big deal everyone's mm-hmm. like wow holy crap now we have you know we, we don't even need a, a person to play the piano or whatever we have these sound effects in here what a, what a, a trip but it's very costly to do this, okay? So uh, he really has to fight for them to bring sound into the movies, for them to try and build this, uh, or to make a movie and, and to start to go forward with making films from now on with sound and music and whatnot. So he talks to the brothers, and he they, they decide that they're going to build their own uh, theater, which, which is what becomes the Pacific Warner Theater. Uh, they're going to build this theater to uh, basically showcase movies with sound. And with all these things, and it's going to be a, a built with Sam in mind, heading up all of the acoustics and the electronics and whatnot, and to basically pioneer this whole speaker system or surround sound or whatever you want to call it. Um, they don't give a lot of detail on how it was set up as far as, you know, if it was surround sound or speaker or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, but I know that he was the one that was installing all the speakers and whatnot into the theaters He himself. was like the original THX. Right, exactly. So, you know, he's getting in there. He's Mr. Dolby and... Just that's going to town on that. So, that's crazy. so they 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 unveil this. Um, they decide that it, it, this is in 1925. They they have the plans to build it. They have the if you look online, there's an artist rendering of what it will look like. They had in the artist rendering a giant um, tower almost in the middle of the of the theater. Uh, it was, I forgot what it was a knockoff. Like of, in the middle of like the, the like the like arcade at the top. Uh, so it was like at the top, and then it would have this big kind of in the middle, oh, okay. almost like yeah. a clock tower kind of looking thing. Oh, okay. Uh, so outside. Outside, oh, correct. Okay, okay. And like they, like RKO, like you see at the beginning of the RKO. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. Uh, they or were at the, the end of Rocky Horror. That's like, <laughs> I forget. <laughs> Good call. Um, so yeah, so I, but that's not what ended up happening. Um, the towers ended up being there and that was kind of a little bit more, ended up being a bit more iconic mm-hmm. than that because he was almost knocking that off of another building that he mm-hmm. just liked it. So he was copying, I forget what it was, if it was a, a Union Station or something like that. 
And so when they didn't do that, they put these towers up here that ended up becoming even more iconic. So it worked mm. out, it, it worked out well for them mm. to do that. Okay. Um, so they, uh, I think they quote something like $3 million for the project to be built. Uh, the construction starts in and, you know, halfway through the construction, um, it's not, it's not going as quickly as they'd hoped and it's coming in over budget. So they're really upset now because, you know, it, it's, it's lagging and it's more expensive. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they're now filming The Jazz Singer, which is in their plans to become the first movie ever incorporated with sound and everything. All so together. they're actually filming it already? Yeah. Okay. So they're yeah. filming this as the building is being built. Wow. And of oh. course, the film is and that's is, that's a trip because back then movies did get made a lot quicker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it, that, yeah, that it wasn't in production for two, three, four years or whatever. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. They filmed it relatively quickly. Uh, the film does star Al Jolson. Uh, good old blackface Al, Al Jolson. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it it it, uh, it basically it basically the the, the building is not going to be ready by the time that the film is ready to be premiered. And that was the whole point of this theater is that this theater is being specifically built to show this movie. So the, the brothers are really upset. They're really disappointed that they're not able to premiere this in this crown jewel of the Warner Brothers theaters. And so uh, Sam is now really upset by this. And so um, he's seen down there, you know, yelling at the building and cursing and shaking his fist and and just, you know, sh just showing his frustration. And everybody can see this. And... Ultimately, it gets the better of him, and poor old Sam has a brain aneurysm and dies six months before this movie is released. Okay, so he's not able to see the fruition of of what he's worked so hard for. I mean, again, being a pioneer in this, it's going to be very exciting for this to be released into the world. Nobody's really seen anything like this other than the Don Juan, and that didn't again have the, the talking in it. So everyone, uh, the brothers are really upset. Uh, the the film actually ends up being released uh, in New York City. Uh, Again, six months, uh, uh, six months after he died. So, uh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. I apologize. Six months when he, the the um, movie theater opened. Six months after he died, the uh, movie was released just a day after he died. So the brothers were supposed to be. After, yeah. Right. So I apologize. Uh, the brothers are supposed to be in New York. They decided to release the film in New York. Um, and they can't because they're going to be attending uh, Sam's funeral. So every all the Warner Brothers missed this big premiere. Uh, the movie is shown in New York. It comes out to a huge fanfare. Mm -hmm. it, it finally is able to come back into California um, and release, but it's it's not released for at least another six months because that it's that the theater itself is that far behind. Jesus, okay, that's, that's crazy. So <clears throat> the theater itself opens up on on April twenty sixth, nineteen twenty eight, and actually Al Jolson is there to uh, premiere. Uh, for, or for the premiere, for the opening, for the grand opening. So they have a bunch of movie stars, but Al Jolson is one of the movie stars. Mm -hmm. They don't show that movie, though. They actually, the first film that was shown there was a film called Glorious Betsy. Um, what that's about, I don't know. Um, and if it had sound, I don't know. But I would guess it did by this point, um, because you're going to premiere that movie at the cinema. So, yeah. um, But Glorious Betsy was the first one shown. Um, the... Uh, let me see here. Al Jolson. Oh, I said it was the opening. Okay, so I'm sorry. Uh, so after it opens up, it, it's it's it come you know it opens to huge fanfare. Uh, it seats over 2,700 people. It has multiple theaters on the inside. Um, they had to tinker with the balcony at points. They've they've 
completely closed off the balconies uh, in the 1970s, I believe, when they refurbished the whole place. So it's gone through a lot of changes. Um, unfortunately, nowadays you can't uh, visit the building because of multiple reasons. Uh, one would be the uh, the Northridge earthquake damaged quite a bit of the uh, infrastructure around it, uh, causing a lot of a lot of the portions of the building to be closed off um, immediately. And then uh, uh, when they started construction of a subway, there's a, a subway that runs underneath the street um, that also added to uh, to to um, the structure being not sound. And so because of that, they basically had to shut down uh, the whole building. Now, there was at one point um, a church group that was able to rent out a portion of the building, uh, and they held um, services there until uh, the uh, late, uh, or, sorry, the late 90s, I believe it was. Uh, and then after that, they were basically uh, told that they have to leave the building because they can no longer let anybody into the building. So to this day, the building is there. Uh, it is completely boarded up and um, shuttered. Uh, however, there are security security guards that do uh, patrol the area. Obviously, we have a, a large homeless problem here in Hollywood, and uh, I'm sure if they were able to break in there, that they would have a huge encampment inside because it's a massive. It takes up almost half of the city block uh, for this one building. Um, <clears throat> a lot of these security guards feel that they've seen um, Sam. Uh, Sam again is uh, Sam Warner, the the man who basically brought this theater with his own uh, blood, sweat, and tears, and soon after a brain aneurysm <laughs> but uh but sweating brains <laughs> Jesus. uh but they a lot of people feel that they've seen um the, the 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 ghost of sam in the building um security guards countless times have seen uh his the outline of his ghost uh usually seen wearing a suit and a fedora or a you know dress of that 1920s look um but uh basically walking back and forth sometimes just shaking angrily yelling at something um but they've actually even reported seeing him go into uh <laughs> the elevator and going into the elevator to take it upstairs and and then go basically going to his office um they've had reports of him actually being in the office moving things around like waste paper baskets or chairs hearing a ruffling of papers or rustling of papers um and things like that and then some of them have said that they've seen him leaving so coming back to coming back down the ele uh the elevator so you know he's been seen in many parts of the building, but it always seems to be work-related. It always seems to be that he's there for either work purposes or just, again, showing that anger and that frustration of the building not being ready when he needed it to be. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems that because of that that energy that he had from that, it's definitely left a mark on that building. Mm -hmm. um, when you read haunted books about Los Angeles, I've, I've noticed that uh, they say that this place is one of the most common, commonly um, haunted places on uh, in Los Angeles or in Hollywood, um, because his his uh, his spirit is so uh, the energy of his spirit is so strong there. Um, I personally leading groups on this tour, I like this. I, again, I like. To, I just think that that's cool history wise that this is this building was made to show the first movie ever with sound. Mm -hmm. Again, being a, a movie fan, I think that that's very interesting. Um, unfortunately it wasn't the first place to show it, but that was the intent of it. And that's kind of cool. Uh, but when I had a guest take some photos of, uh, if you decide anybody out there listening decides to go down to the, uh, uh, building, you can, uh, get some decent shots of the front foyer. Uh, there, there's, there's boards there with holes in it that you can stick a camera in and, and take some cool shots. And, uh, I do recommend that, but we had uh, one of our guests do that. And, uh, I did see the outline 
one of the photos kind of looked like the ghostly outline of somebody in a, in a suit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could take it or leave it. You could use your imagination, and it was neat. I mean, I've had that happen on, like, I you know, I run tours, too. Yeah. Uh, and they take pictures at that hole that's down by the door, mm-hmm. at the bottom of the door. And I had guests, one by one, coming, you know, taking turns, taking pictures. And everybody looked at their pictures, and they all had this, like, shadow in the picture. Mm. And then we compared all the pictures to each other. And it, if you put them in order, it looked like the shadow was moving across mm. because it's in a different place in each yeah, picture. Interesting. Whatever that is, sure. you know, it could have been the security guard's shadow yeah. in there, you know, but still very spooky and satisfying, you Absolutely. know, on the tour. No, I've gotten a lot of uh, weird pictures of that one. Somebody had a face in the light that was in there. Yeah, yeah, in mm. the glass. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lot. Of, it's just, I mean, it's a beautiful building. I mean, it looks, it looks like... I mean, I always say on the tour it was something that would that would have rivaled the Pantages mm-hmm. when it was open. It's yeah, gorgeous yeah. place. So let me give you just kind of a couple of quick facts here about it. Basically, um, when when uh, Sam and GE get together and they create this sound, they called it Vitaphone. Vitaphone. Mm-hmm. Okay, so That's Vitaphone right. is what was basically uh, the the brand uh, to to make these movies. Um, it premiered in in New York in 1926. So that was. When in 1926 was when uh, the jazz singer was or well, so Vitaphone they, was appeared. so they used Vitaphone sorry at the release in New York right so I guess I guess, I think uh, the 1920 uh, the Vitaphone was for the Don Juan so that was 1926 because uh, 1927 was was okay. the jazz singer so uh, the Vitaphone was actually used for I believe for the Don Juan and then um, uh, they premi- they premiered Vitaphone in the Egyptian theater a few months after the New York show mm-hmm. so. Um, and again, it was popular, but it was expensive. So that was a big reason. But then obviously when the jazz singer was released, it ended up being like a huge blockbuster. Like it made something Mm -hmm. like like $4 million or something like that at the time. And so of course, you know, this is 1927. So $4 million. (laughs) Could you imagine being like a silent film star and seeing that and being like, shit. A lot of people's (laughs) careers were over at that time. A lot of actors had, they had accents. You know, mm-hmm. or just voices uh, that don't sound that great yeah. on camera. Yep. Yeah, that was you it. You know, so what um, was that movie that uh, was like you know, some some old movie that where they discuss that? Uh, they talk about that in um, Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain, thank yeah. you. Yeah, where they where they like putting the mic in the rows and stuff closer. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah, but that yeah, that's kind of how it was. Huh? Uh, Sam died on October fifth, nineteen twenty seven. The movie was released in New York on October 6th, 1927. Yeah, so it was just literally before the day before. Um, and I wonder, I, they I were saying if he would have gone to the premiere or still have been working. <laughs> yeah, probably you know would have still mean? been there. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that's a good question. G. Albert Langsberg, uh, Landberg was the architect of the building itself. So. Hmm. Any other buildings he did in Hollywood? Um, that's a good question. I did not see anything um i think he was well known for other buildings but i I forget offhand what it was uh pacific theaters bought them in 1968 uh it closed in 1994 and then it finally fully closed in 2013 with uh from the church Mm -hmm. so 2013 was when the church was officially kicked out um so yeah God, I can't see. But uh, yeah, for the ghost stories, <laughs> um, there's also there was a plaque put up um, to commemorate Sam in the front uh, lobby, and a lot of people mm. feel that the hauntings happen around the plaque area. Mm-hmm. So if you're able to, able to see inside and you can see the plaque, that would be a prime location to to, to possibly spot Sam. 
Um, they also said some things disappear from time to time too, but it's mostly just seeing him as a ghost kind of, you know, walking back and forth or again, taking the, taking the elevator upstairs. So crazy. Very cool. Wonderful. Damn. Well, there you go. People. Good story. Yeah. Right, yeah. That is a good one. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been episode three. Yeah. So it's haunted the podcast. Three or we'll see. When, or yeah, yeah. We'll see how much we really Gee. liked episode one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you guys want your assignments for next week? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, great. We, we should probably to. tell um, our listeners we're kind of doing a little bit new format now. Um, Tia's jumped on as kind of like a producer role as well. Um, I have decided to give you guys assignments moving forward. Exactly. I'm going to be the chief, like in Carmen San Diego, right, <laughs> yeah. assignments Except to investigate. We don't, we don't need to find anybody that doesn't exist. You know, <laughs> uh, I basically all day, every day, like I wake up watching Chills and then I'll watch Bailey Sarian Chills. and then uh, after that I'll listen to My Favorite Murder and then after that I'll watch some Unsolved Mysteries, <laughs> Mystery and Scandal, you know, and bring it back home with a silent film at the end of the day to go to sleep. And you wrap it all with an episode of Elf. Is yeah, that how it exactly. Goes? Yeah. And I'm like uh, the Simpsons. And so, space. so I do know a lot of stories, and like by all means, guys, like if you come up with a story or something that is like immediate in, uh, in the news, like by all means, like that is gonna, you know, be more important than anything I could give you. <laughs> uh, so, but for so. For uh, these days, they're going to be a theme, and uh, maybe you'll maybe it'll be obvious, or maybe after we share our stories next week, we'll know kind of what the theme or you know the idea I had behind putting these stories together. Uh, so, Jameson, mm-hmm. your assignment is to tell the real story of the Amityville Horror. Ooh, excellent! So I want to know the story behind the movie. Or behind the book that inspired the movie. For all our yeah. listeners that don't know the Amityville Horror, you probably are listening to the wrong podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but they'll know by next week, you That's know? True. They'll there know next go. week That's what true. it is. Yeah, stay tuned if you uh, Pat, your assignment is uh, The Exorcist, The Cursed Set. Ooh. So let me know why they believe that the set of The Exorcist was cursed and mine and i'm gonna be vague with mine i'm going to do the curse of atuk oh well that's definitely no explanation there you'll find out next week is it an acronym is it a different language did she say it wrong (laughs) is it a horribly racist trope we don't know (laughs) maybe next time um, um but yeah that's all right sweet we're ready we'll see you guys next week um might uh jameson might be coming in on telephone well you guys will find out i guess uh, or we might have a guest host who knows but yeah tune in next time if you like it share it because sharing is caring and so is scary Yay. bye guys caring caring and so is scary and so is scaring yes um <laughs> <laughs> yes yes um but also yes make sure and subscribe and you can find us on iHeartRadio, itunes or wherever you get your podcasts yay see you guys later bye thanks guys peace Woo.